Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Kieran O'Connor. He is the Chief Marketing Officer for Braver Angels. Before joining Braver Angels, uh, Kieran served as a staffer on the 2012 Obama campaign and the 2016 Clinton campaign. Braver Angels is a national citizens movement to bring liberals, conservatives, and others, that's a big category of others, and others together at the grassroots level, not to find centrist compromise, but to find one another as citizens. Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Austin. It's good to be with you. Why doesn't Braver Angels care about centrist compromise? That's a good question, and it's an important one because I think it's something that distinguishes us from a lot of other organizations that try to do this work and also distinguishes us from the stereotype that some people may have in their head when they think about an organization or a mission that's trying to bring people together. A lot of times people think if you're trying to bring people together, you must be trying to arrive at some kind of mushy, centrist compromise where you are papering over your differences, you're holding hands, and you're singing kumbaya. I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but that's certainly the stereotype that some folks have of organizations that seek to bridge divides. We explicitly want to bring people in who are very polarized, who have strong ideological positions across the political spectrum. And we don't want people to feel like they need to compromise their views, moderate their positions, or abandon their values. But we do want people to come in good faith and be open to engaging with another perspective that's very different from their own. So we believe that by bringing people together with the right structure, you can change people's hearts, even if you don't necessarily change their minds to arrive at a centrist compromise. And so what's the benefit of someone uh, changing their heart about the other side that you see? Like if you're at Braver Angels and you're saying, hey, we had these meetups, if this, out- if this was the outcome, we were successful. Like what, what, what is that for you? Well, I think it starts on a personal level if you can build trust with someone you disagree with, it makes it a lot easier to be in relationship with them, to tolerate them, and to work with them on the areas where you do agree. Even if you say only agree on 15% of issues, if you trust them, you feel like you understand their perspective, it becomes a lot easier to work together as citizens as a family, as a workplace, as a community, and as a nation. And one of the underlying theses, I suppose you could say, that guides our work is that social trust in the United States has been disintegrating. And without social trust, the democratic experiment fails. Because without social trust, people no longer believe in not only the institutions that govern our policies and our principles, but the very shared reality that we all need to buy into in order to work together and in order to accept the results of elections, for example. So I think this idea of building trust oftentimes precedes 
the work of building agreement. And that's really the approach that guides our ethos. Are there, you mentioned election results, are there views or issues totally beyond the pale that where those people are not invited to um, establish social trust with other people? Are there, like, where's, where's the line? We don't draw a line with respect to substance of people's views. We draw a line when it comes to the structure of our engagement. So people who come into our work generally agree to a set of ground rules. A lot of it is the same stuff that you learn in kindergarten. No name calling, no ad hominem attacks. Try to approach conversations with an open mind where you're not there to try to convince someone else to change their position. You're there to express your own perspective and listen to what someone else has to say. But we don't say, oh, well, if you believe this, that's really extreme and you can't come to a Braver Angels workshop because that would ultimately defeat the purpose of our work, particularly in the current domestic political context, right? So if we said, you know, you can only come to a Braver Angels conversation if you are willing to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States, which there are some people who say that that should be a precondition for conversations about 2020 that bring liberals and conservatives together. If that's the position that you're taking, you are essentially writing off tens of millions of Americans. And perhaps then your goal is to build bridges between Democrats and never Trump Republicans. And there's plenty of organizations that are trying to do that. Again, we want the most polarized people. These are the people that we need to reach if we're going to succeed in growing social trust, if we're going to succeed in growing goodwill and reducing rancor, and if we're ultimately going to change the norms that govern incentives and behavior. So yeah, I was excited that we were speaking with you because you're someone who you're not only in you talked about sort of the stereotype of bridging divides and all this. And there's certainly like a large nonprofit sector that talks a big game on getting people to have conversations or, or build trust in that, in that way. Braver Angels certainly does it in a way that seems far deeper than simply we're going to put a bunch of Republicans and Democrats in a room. But you came from sort of a hard-nosed political background. And I'm curious how campaigns kind of play a part in this? And if you think, like, should a campaign be focused on building trust with people who they're never going to get to vote for them? That seems like sort of a pro like an incentives problem where campaigns are never, they're, they're, they're resource scarce. They're never going to invest the time or energy or money into building trust with someone who would never vote for them because why would they? Do you see any tension there? Yeah, I do think there is some tension. I think, look, American politics is and should be competitive. The, the stakes of our election are incredibly high, and oftentimes the differences between the two parties and the candidates are very stark. And it makes sense to try to do everything you can to win at the ballot box, right? To sort of win 
on the playing field. But American politics has gotten to the point where people aren't really trying to win on the playing field. They're trying to, you know, blow up the other team's tour bus before the game even starts. And one of the things that we believe at Braver Angels is that you don't need to, you know, hang up your jersey, your partisan jersey, in order to be a Braver Angel. We want people who are simultaneously doing the work of advocacy, persuasion, activism, and campaigning, but also believe in the deeper work of conversation. And oftentimes, yes, those two things are intention, but they don't have to be. And I found that actually engaging in good faith with opposing perspectives can improve your ability to be an activist and an advocate and persuade people if that's your goal, rather than somehow reduce your firepower or uh, surrender your position because you're talking to the other side. And so I think if your goal is really a strategic one, being able to engage in these conversations builds understanding that helps you be a campaigner. But fundamentally, working on a political campaign is different because, as you mentioned, there are limited resources. You want to direct your uh, time, energy, and money toward the most bang for your buck in terms of winning. And that doesn't oftentimes mean talking to people who aren't going to vote for you. So those two things are different, but they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. The Braver Angels project is sort of a larger, deeper, uh, more civic engagement kind of work than sort of the narrow, who's going to win this election cycle. Are there, I'm curious about the political aspect of it though, just because it seems to be the lens through which almost everyone sees civic engagement now. Like it's like, who did you vote for? Or what, you know, are you volunteering for stuff? Who do you support? Um, and I was trying to think of politicians in maybe our lifetime who have done a good job of this. And I was speaking to someone yesterday about uh, Bernie Sanders in a really funny way. They were, they basically said, and they were, there was, it was a job interview. And I was kind of asking about what, the, you know, their political history kind of, and how they think about things. And they said, yeah, I, I kind of like Bernie. I think none of his policies are workable and they would be a total disaster, but I just kind of like him. And, and I thought that that was really interesting and sort of speaks to something about maybe perhaps it's who's, who he's chosen as his enemies uh, that makes him more likable to a broad, <laughs> a broad swath of people who are both um, liberal and conservative uh, in a sense. Can you think of political figures or individuals that have done a particularly good job of building trust, uh, this sort of social trust concept with say the other side over the last few years? Yeah, I think Bernie is an interesting example because he sought to build a cross-partisan, cross-racial coalition that is aligned against the millionaires and the billionaires, you know, the the powerful interests that would hold the working the working person down. And so I think that his work in terms of bringing people together has been very oriented uh, against a common enemy, which would be 
the one percent, uh, you know, Wall Street entrenched interests. Um, I'm biased, but I think that Barack Obama is a great example of someone who would, especially in his initial run for president and in the early part of his presidency, that was really trying to speak to those higher ideals. I mean, Obama was obviously biracial, but he did seem to be someone who could go into downstate Illinois and into Iowa, into rooms of conservative white voters and connect with them. And if you look at a lot of his rhetoric, it was very better angels E. Obviously, I think from my perspective, the sad irony is that he became such a, a demon for, for so many Americans as sort of the emblem of the oppressive liberals. But I think that a lot of successful American politicians have sought to reach for a more transcendent coalition than just energizing their base. Unfortunately, I think over the past five years, that kind of strategy seems naive and Pollyannish and counterproductive to people mm -hmm. given the current sort of scorched earth environment that we find ourselves in. I'm curious, sort of just operationally, what exercises is Bravery Angels having people do to build this trust? Like someone goes to a meeting, like what's the actual programming and how does it affect people? Yeah. So there's at this point, a number of different programs that we offer depending on who's participating and what they're talking about. Our initial workshop was the red blue workshop, which was a group of six to eight Republicans and six to eight Democrats. And it's moderated. It was originally in person. It's built around a series of exercises that help people see each other and understand each other beyond stereotypes. So it gives each side the opportunity to hear from the other side in their own words, which is a simple concept, but is in sharp contrast to the ways in which we oftentimes form our perceptions of the other side now, which is through our own tribal filter bubble. So at the very basic level, the goal is exposure, but exposure in a structured way so that people feel safe and people feel like they can actually listen to understand rather than listen to counter or uh, score points. So there's various exercises that we do, but they're all sort of geared at establishing that space that allows for the organic clarification of disagreements, illuminating common values where they do exist, and starting to build that trust and understanding that makes people less polarized not necessarily in terms of their ideological attitudes or their policy positions, but their attitudes toward one another. So the polarization has gotten to the point where 
we no longer view our political opponents as simply like wrong or misguided, but fundamentally bad people whose ways of thinking are dangerous and incomprehensible. And what the workshops have been shown to do is reduce that level of affective polarization. So people are not as vitriolic toward the other side and more open to them as fellow citizens, even if they still find their ideas to be reprehensible or alarming or what have you. So if, if those exercises, say everyone in America were to do those sorts of exercises, especially the people on the, the hardened edges of the political spectrum, if you're looking at it just left versus right, what would we expect to change in Congress? Or would, is that not at the level at which we would see the change? Would we see it in other ways in our lives? Well, I think over time, the goal is to create a virtuous cycle so that we are depolarizing citizens who can then put pressure on politicians and elected officials who comprise the institution of politics, but also try to directly depolarize institutions whether that's the media or academia or politics itself, because as institutions become less polarized, they then exert influence on individuals. As individuals become less polarized, they exert influence on institutions. And right now what's happening is the opposite. And it's going to take a fair amount of grassroots muscle to change incentives, but that is the work of a transformative social movement. And it usually starts at the grassroots level. So if you, so Kieran is speaking to us uh, from, you said the Upper East Side? The East Village. Oh, the East Village. So if Kieran, if you're at a classic New York City apartment cocktail party and you're talking about your work and someone says, Kieran, why would I ever want to sit in a room and listen to racists tell me about their beliefs? How has that helped me in any way? Why do I need to listen to any of those people that uh, want to inflict violence on me and people like me? What do you say? Well, the first thing I'd say is this work is not for everyone. So, uh, uh, uh-huh. I think oftentimes people will jump to the most hyperbolic, like logical extension of the suggestion that you should try to be more curious and open-minded right. and say, okay, so you're like, telling so me. So I've got to, uh, yeah, I talk to, to pedophiles to all day. I have, yeah. yeah, I have to go talk to a Nazi <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe don't start there. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think part of it is also, you know, we've seen the consequences of extreme polarization and increasingly they lead to violence and we don't really need to convince people that the current environment is a problem i think we just need to show that you can reduce rancor without having to abandon your principles or 
grant legitimacy to ideas that you find dangerous or discriminatory or hateful. And I think there's a distinction to be drawn between one-on-one conversations or closed conversations and then say public conversations like podcasts where you're more of a publisher than you are a convener. And so I think there are nuances. I also think, I mean, I guess some people who are at a Manhattan cocktail party might have the, you know, quote unquote, luxury of not having to talk to a Trump supporter for six months. But most people in America, they live and love and work alongside people who are on the other side of the political divide. And a lot of those people do care about maintaining those relationships. And in terms of a social progress level, we've, we've seen what happens. I think, you know, polarization breeds dysfunction. And lastly, I'd say, I mean, it sounds like this person that we're hypothetical person we're talking about is probably a liberal. The, I would say that it doesn't seem like the left's effort to uh, avoid or silence or marginalize is really working out very well for them. Uh, in fact, I think it's, it's backfiring them. And so if your goal is to uh, maintain or acquire power, it might be worth thinking through a different approach beyond uh, you know, mockery, contempt, alienation, or thinking that you can simply wash your hands of it. What do you think are short of um, finding out if Brave Angels is doing something in your backyard, wherever you are, uh, just some practical individual steps you think people can take when they find themselves having feelings of disgust towards people with other political views, for example? Like what are, what are just a couple things in day-to-day life you would recommend? We have one workshop that's called Depolarizing Within, and it sort of helps people take a look within themselves and reflect on the feelings that they have toward others. I think that people's ideologies are increasingly intertwined with their identities, and so there's a fear that engaging with ideas that you find threatening is somehow losing a piece of your identity. Um, But it's important to distinguish between beliefs and people. And people can change their beliefs. And oftentimes, the way that people change their beliefs is through exposure and conversation. So this requires a lot of courage and it's not for everybody, but somebody's got to do it because the alternative frankly is, is, is more political violence and the disintegration of the United States, but we can't really have some sort of civic divorce where red and blue go their separate ways because we're all citizens. That would mean a civil war. And 
we all live amongst each other, right? I mean, there are millions of Trump supporters in New York City, and there are millions of liberals in the South. So I think there's a hard reality here that we have to contend with. And sometimes it's worth putting the good of the citizenry over uh, your own ego. I would suggest a slight tweak in the title of depolarizing. Was it said depolarizing within or depolarizing within, inside? Right. Depolarizing within could just be the don't hate the player, hate the game exercise, mm. maybe. Just a slight. Totally. I know you're the chief marketing officer. If you could just take that under consideration, I think that's, I'd really that's appreciate good uh, su- subhead. Great. <laughs> yeah. So for I know you guys, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about a new initiative you have that is seemingly a very big leap, um, but also in some ways like a natural progression of engaging directly in the political process. Because you were talking a bit about, well, our goal would be almost uh, uh, if citizens and voters feel this way, they'll demand better of their politicians. They'll be um, perhaps more disgusted by people who try to foment this divide. Uh, You're launching a new initiative that is really entering into the political arena. I was wondering if you could could talk a bit about that. Yes. So it is called Braver Politics, and it is our effort to engage elected officials and candidates across the United States at the local, state, and national level. So from school boards, which themselves have become cauldrons of polarization and city councils, to county commissioners, state legislatures, and the U.S. Congress. We want to help politicians be able to build relationships across the divide work together constructively, improve their relationships with constituents, and ultimately change incentives. Because right now, the vast majority of incentives are, unless you come from a purple district, very much aligned against any sort of um, depolarizing behavior. And so we want to try to take what we've seen work demonstrably, measurably at the citizen to citizen level and bring that into the political arena, both by empowering citizens to engage their politicians, but also by working directly with politicians. So Brave Angels plans to host candidate debates between candidates who are running for office. But unlike the candidate debates we've become familiar with, which are generally geared toward humiliating your opponent, scoring points. These would be sort of more of a shared pursuit of truth that enables constituents to actually understand what their candidates believe. Where do they actually agree and where do they disagree? Um, And so the project is still in its infancy, but we do see it as sort of a natural extension of our work and we're excited to start piloting it this summer because it's going to be the heat of the 2022 election season. And if people want to learn more about this, they can go to braverangels.org and find them on any social media platform. Uh, Kieran O'Connor, thanks for taking time today. 
Yes, thank you, Austin.